You're an airshow pilot. You fly an unlimited aerobatic airplane in a bone-crushing routine that would make most of us either pass out or lose our lunch. But when the show is over, you dial it back and have a leisurely flight home. The pressure is off until your engine literally explodes. What do you do? What are your options? Are you prepared for this kind of emergency? It happened to a well-known airshow pilot, and he'll share his experience on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, welcome to episode 25 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder, and it's my privilege to welcome to the podcast aerobatic champion Rob Holland. He had a serious I Laughed incident that required quick thinking, immediate assessment of his options, and superb piloting skills. My chat with Rob Holland comes up right after this brief message from Avemco. As pilots, we're taught never to assume the tanks are full or the plane is safe. And when you rent, never assume you're covered by your flight school or FBO's insurance. Their policy is to protect them, not you. Injure someone or damage property and you could still be sued. Bend a wingtip and you could still be responsible for the deductible or more. A quick visit to avemco.com slash flying can protect you with Avemco renter's insurance for as little as $95. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 today and be sure you're covered the next time you fly. Now, I learned about flying from that. Rob Holland is a champion the current and 10-time U.S. National Unlimited Aerobatic Champion, that's a record, the current and five-time World Freestyle Aerobatic Champion, winner of 28 medals in world competition, 14 of them gold, the 2012 Art Scholl Memorial Showmanship Award, and in 2019 was named an honorary Blue Angel, just to name a few of the awards he's won. Rob, welcome to I Laughed. Thank you. It's great to be here. Rob, I've known you as an airshow pilot for many years, but you had to start someplace, and it probably wasn't in an airplane like the MXSRH that was built to your specifications. <laughs> no. So, you know, when I was a kid, it's kind of the same old story as a lot of people. Like, you know, I was lucky my dad brought me to an airshow, and I saw people flying upside down, and that was it. That was, that's what I had to do. I was always infatuated with, with flying and airplanes, but that one airshow, you know, a joke, but it's true. All the models that I had of airplanes were now hanging upside down from the ceiling after that. So <laughs> that kind of set me on the path. And I went to uh, aviation college, um, got all my degrees there, and also all my ratings there. And then I knew I wanted to do aerobatics. I just didn't, I didn't know the path. I didn't know how to get into it. So I started off on the path that you had to become an airline pilot to try to get enough money to get the airplane, yada, yada. So I flight instructed, I towed banners, I ferried airplanes, I worked for a commuter for a while, I flew corporate for a little while. But the whole time I was doing that, I was also flying aerobatics on the side, building my skills and, um, you know, learning 
hopefully towards the goal of becoming an airshow pilot someday. Did you start in a in a pit and a biplane, or what did you? What was your first? The uh, first aerobatic airplane I ever flew was a Steen Skybolt. It's kind of like a large pits on steroids. Yeah, um, belongs yeah. to a good buddy of mine to this day. Still a good friend of mine. Um, and then just whatever I get my hands on. So Tabriers, the Cathlons, Acrosports, Acrodusters, pits. Um, I mean, if it could go upside down and somehow get my hands on it, I was trying to learn how to fly it. Did you ever have any difficulty with air sickness like Bob Hoover did? No, I'm, I'm just lucky in that regards. I've never had air sickness, emotion sickness, or any, I just got an iron stomach. So kind of a freak of nature like that, but it's, it's, it's pretty good for my job. Well, you bet it is. Well, you finally made the break into some, evidently some local and regional competitions. How long did it take you to work your way up to the nationals? Well, I mean, the way it all came about, I didn't even know what competition was. I just knew I wanted to be an air show pilot. So eventually my corporate job was the typical job where the guy's money went away, the airplane went away, my job went away. And I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I knew Mike Goulian, and he had his aerobatic uh, flight school down near Boston. So he needed an aerobatic instructor and someone to run the program, and I had built all this experience. So I went down there and started working for Mike Goulian. And I did that for about a year. Um, and one of the things that they did is they took their students and they would take them to local competitions. So that's what introduced me to competition aerobatics. Um, we did two different regional competitions through his school. A year later, I ended up starting my own aerobatic school with his blessing. We had talked about it. And um, I leased a decathlon and I leased a pits. And I worked to deal with the gentleman who owned the pits to be able to use it for competition and to try to get into air shows. Um, so I started doing more and more competition on the regional level. I got my um, statement of aerobatic competency, which allowed me to start doing air shows. So I can finally dip my toes into that. And then I just hit the ground running and I started building from there. And it has led to uh, these this World Aerobatic Freestyle Championship. That's got to be something that helps you uh, in your attitude with respect to how you perform at an air show, it, it's got to give you a lot of confidence that when you go in front of an audience just for air show flying, that you can give them a spectacular performance each and every time. Yeah, it's it's one of the few areas in competition where air show flying actually kind of helps. Um, so I use the two to basically train for each other. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm always just trying to think outside the box. I, I really enjoy watching other people fly one because I'm a fan, but also because I want to watch what everyone else is doing. So I don't do that, you know, because I want to do my own thing. I don't want to fly like everybody else. That's their thing. I want to do my <laughs> thing. So, you know, I try to, there's a lot of waking up at two in the morning, just scratching your head going, huh, I wonder if an airplane can do whatever I just dreamt up. And 99% of the time it can't, but every now and then you strike upon something and it does work and you refine it and you build it and you practice it and you work out all the margins in it and then eventually you can introduce it to an air show or into the freestyle and competition. Now that you said something very important there, Rob, about margins. My assumption is that you start every maneuver with the end in mind. And number two, you start it high enough that you can recover if something doesn't go as planned. But and number three, my assumption is, like Mike Goulian says, you do something 10,000 times before you do it in public. Yeah, so I've never liked watching figures that look like they had a quote-unquote recovery to them. I want a figure that I do to have, this is where it starts, this is the meat of it, and this is how it ends. And it's always going to end the exact same way. It has an ending, it doesn't have a recovery. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, when people see some of the stuff I do in air shows, they, they see the end result, but they don't see what goes into getting it to that point. Um, a good example is the inside tumble that I do. That was two years from thinking of it to finally figuring out how to do it, to figuring out how to do it safe, to figuring out how to actually incorporate it in an air show, to practicing enough where I didn't have to think about the figure anymore, where it was actually easy. I mean, it's a long time before I actually even inserted it into an air show. And a lot of the figs are like that because you want to build in the margins. You want to build in if something goes wrong, I'm at this attitude, the engine quits or whatever happens. How much altitude do I need to recover to get into a flared attitude um, so, you know, I can walk away from it? And then you put a little bit of a buffer on that also. But it takes a while to figure all that stuff out and a lot of uh, trial and error. And obviously you do it at altitude. You don't do it down low. Um, and once you have all those numbers worked out and you have the maneuver worked out where you don't have to think about it, your concentration can be on where am I, what altitude am I at, what's the airspeed, where's the wind coming from, where's the crowd, that's when you actually put it in an air show. And you have an incredible airplane to do it with. The MXSRH is one that uh, MX Aircraft has been around for a while, but they've done some special mods for you personally. Yeah, so I mean the MX is an amazing airplane by itself. Um, I started off in an MX-2, the two-seater, and flying that, I just kind of learned some of the things I wanted that was you know, more. So when we just built the single-seater, I went to them and said, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to do this with the rudder, I'd like to do this with the elevator, and a few other modifications, and um, they worked with me on it. And I'm not an engineer in any ways, but I just kind of figured hopefully this will work, and luckily it did. So we did some modifications to the airplane, and a lot of those modifications are actually standard on the airplane now, but... Um, that was way back in 2011 when we figured all that out. You really are hard on the airplanes. And I'm assuming that because of the, the stress you put on the airplane and also on the engine, that your TBO time is, is fractional compared to, say, what I have in an RV with an 1,800-hour TBO. You know, that's interesting. And that is kind of a perspective that a lot of people have that's not necessarily true. Um, I'm hard on me, but the, aer the airplane is rated to plus minus 16 G's, right? So there's a big margin there and it's a very, very strong airplane. So even if I'm putting in a competition 12 and minus nine on it, which I routinely do, there's still a long ways to go before you start getting in the safety factor of the airplane. There's a lot of margin. So I'm working myself hard. I am flying hard, but I'm not working the airplane that hard. You know, you want a robust airplane so you don't have to worry about it breaking. So... There's that side of it. The engine side of it, um, I've been fairly lucky with most of my engines. Um, it's 11 to 1 compression. It's only a 500-hour TBO anyways. 99% of the time I make it past 500 hours, um, just a little bit because it's usually the end of the season. I'm trying to finish up the last air show. Um, but it's, it's definitely harder on the engine than it is actually on the airplane. Gotcha. Well, there was one particular situation that actually leads us to the I laughed moment. You were at Naval Air Station Kingsville doing a show there, and you were going to go back over to Cachada, Louisiana, to the home of the uh, Coleman's, Kevin and Weish and Weish Sr., and uh, relax a little bit over there. This turned out to be one eventful flight. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, that was uh, definitely an eventful flight. So I took <laughs> off, I completed the air show. Uh, everything was fine and normal. I took off out of Kingsville, and I was heading up to Louisiana, like you said. I just leveled off at about 11,500 feet. Um, I was just north of um, Corpus Christi, Texas. And also, I just started getting this weird vibration. Just enough that I started looking at my instruments like, what, what is going on? 
And right about that time, there was a huge bang. The oil door actually flew open, a big chunk of something flew out over my head. I saw the right side of the cowling bow out about a foot, and that was the last thing I saw um, because the canopy was covered with oil. It was vibrating like crazy. I pulled the nose up, slowed it down. The engine stopped, or the prop stopped, and that was that. <laughs> so it, it, it blew up pretty good. Um, you know, it's amazing. It's like, as I'm talking, it sounds like I had all the time in the world, but it's amazing how fast the mind actually works. You know, I immediately thought I had three options. I can jump out of the airplane because I had a parachute and that was an option. I could land in a field somewhere or I could f try to find some sort of airport to put it down on. And right away you start working through all the options. It was really windy that day. It was gusting about 30, 35 knots. And um, I'm obviously not an experienced uh, skydiver. It's a round parachute, so you're at the mercy of the wind. And I just figured that's, you know, jumping out, popping that parachute and hitting something at 35 knots is probably not a good option. Um, there was flat One down, two to go. Sorry? One down, two to go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there was flat fields everywhere, but it was uh, springtime. It was just the time of year where everything was freshly plowed. So that's, you know, you land in a field and soft, it's instant upside down. Um, so that wasn't really a good option. So I used my GPS. I used um, nearest airport function. And I was near the uh, town of Rockport. And the Rockport Airport was a great option to go to, but I didn't know if I could actually glide there. These airplanes don't glide well. They're like a manhole cover sideways. Um, <laughs> a but, bag of hammers. Exactly. But short of there, there was another, on the GPS, was marked as a private airport. I was like, well, I know I can make it there. So that's what I aimed at. And I'm coming down pretty fast. To this day, I would have loved to be able to make it to Rockport, but I don't know if I would have made it. And if I didn't make it, I'd be in a bay of you know, in the water. So that wouldn't be a good option. So I'm looking at this airport, this private strip on the GPS. I can't see anything out of the front of the airplane. And um, the way the wind was going, um, I forget the actual directions, but one direction on the runway, the very end of the runway was into the water. The other end of the runway is into a field. Um, so I knew which way I wanted to land. It was a short strip. It was only 1,700 feet and about 25 feet wide. And I oh couldn't boy. see it because it, it was a pretty good VFR day, but there was one cloud right over that airport down at about 700 feet. So I couldn't actually see it. So the way the wind was going, I knew I was going to land with a pretty hefty tailwind, but I figured if I overshot, I was going into a field. I didn't want to overshoot the other direction and go into the water. So I'm circling down. I'm on a, I guess you call it a downwind leg, just about to turn base. I'm finally low enough. I can see the, uh, the runway and it's it's small it looked like a pencil now at this point had the oil blown off the windscreen enough so you had some forward visibility no i couldn't see anything out the front i could see a little bit it was a little blurry but i could see like 90 left and 90 right and that was about it everything all the flying at this point was off the uh, the instruments and the gps um, okay and the instruments and the gps did you have did you have synthetic vision was that part of the part yeah, of the scheme yeah i have a your... i have an M mgl IEFIS in my airplane it's got the synthetic vision um it was it was great i mean it was instrumental in me finding this airport the way i did can't say enough good things about them indeed yep so anyways i turned base turned final i'm slipping like crazy so i can kind of see out the side um i was lined up the best that i, I thought it could be i kicked out I touched down in probably the first 200 feet of the runway. Um, I wanted to touch down early because it was short and I had a tailwind. Uh, and I remember touching down and thinking, okay, it's, I'm on the ground, 
But what I didn't see, because I couldn't because of the oil in the canopy, is... So back up a little bit. Rockport is right where Hurricane Harvey had made landfall. And it got devastated there. But one of the things it did is it took a big piece of somebody's roof and it deposited it on the runway. Still had a direct TV antenna on it. Um, and I didn't see it. And this, Oh, no. Yeah, and this oh. supposed private strip, it turns out it wasn't actually a private strip. But it was an abandoned airport. It hadn't been used as an air, airport since like 99. So the the state forest the or some agency the down there was actually just using it as an access road. Oh boy! So, so not only did you have an obstruction, but probably the surface was a was in miserable shape too. Yeah, it was pretty rough, but that was at least my problems at that point. Um, so I didn't see this hunk of runway, and it turns out I t-boned it with my left gear leg. And the the landing gear in the MX it's one piece. The the left gear carries over under the fuselage down to the right gear. And when I hit it, I just tore it right off the bottom of the airplane. And now I'm on the belly, sliding down the runway. Eventually, kind of slid off the side of the runway, but I slid about 1,000 feet before it actually came to a stop. And um, I joke, but this is absolutely true. Like, I knew it was on the belly. I knew it was sliding. I had no control. I knew the gear was gone, but I was still pushing on those brakes for all that they were worth. (laughs) And But at that point... Were you glad you were on the ground? Was that was that a huge relief, just that part of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it came to a stop. You know, the insult to injury was that really short step out of the airplane. Um, but it came to a stop. <laughs> you know, I hadn't... I hadn't turned everything off in the airplane, all the electrical stuff. And the reason being is because I was... That EFIS, that synthetic vision, that was kind of a lifeline. You know, I was using that almost like 90% of my flying was using that to get to where I was going, even down to the runway, because it actually depicts the runway. And so that helped a lot. I didn't want to turn it off. And then the last second of flaring, I was kind of concentrated on the actual landing part and not turning everything off. So once it came to a complete stop, make sure I turned everything off, mags off, the fuel I'd already shut off. And I got out of the airplane and it's like, well, here I am. Were you, okay, the next the next question is, were you within cell range? I was. So I, I mean, I had an idea where I was, but I'd never been there, so I didn't really know where I was. And it was just, there was nothing there. There was, there was no houses, no buildings, no anything. Um, so I was like, well, so I just dialed 911. And um, they answered. I'm like, all right, before I say anything, I just want you to know I'm okay. There's no problems. But. I just kind of crashed my airplane, and I started flipping out. I'm like, I'm okay. I just don't know where I am, and I need a ride. <laughs> so it took the cops about an hour to actually find me. And then um, once they did, they were terrific, and we just started working from there. But Let me ask you, was the, air, was the aircraft destroyed as a result of this? Yeah, it was pretty much totaled. Um, what it happened, ended up happening after the, we did the investigation and the NTSB looked at it, the, there's two counterweights on the crankshaft, and it chucked one of the counterweights, and it went so out of balance. The engine literally ripped itself in half. The front half of the engine was not attacked, attached to the back half of the engine, and it ripped itself right off the engine mounts. So the only thing actually holding the engine to the airplane was the cowling, and I'm glad I didn't know that in the air. Um, oh, gosh. And then, obviously, when the gear came off, I slid quite away in the belly. It's a carbon fiber airplane, so it tore up the belly. It tore up a little bit of the bottom of the wings. Um, everything on the top of the airplane was fine, but it's it, the insurance totaled the airplane. An airplane you can replace. A pilot you can't. 
So glad you walked away from it. Tell you what, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll discuss those things that you learned about flying from that. Stability. If you're like most pilots, that's a word that's important. And it's important to Avemco Insurance. They've been protecting GA pilots for 60 years and have been rated A++ for stability. You'll instantly save 5% off your annual premium just by being an ILAF listener. Save even more with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. To learn more, call 800-338-8705 or go to avemco.com slash flying. Now, back to iLaft. We're back with Rob Holland, who experienced not just an engine failure in his custom-built MXSRH, but an engine pretty much explosion, which forced him down onto an abandoned runway, into a piece of a uh, roof of a house, and screeching to a stop unhurt, totaled the airplane, and it was on a portion of a flight that was supposed to be pleasant, just going to visit friends. Rob, did you learn any lessons from, from that flight? Anything that you can share with all of us? Uh, yeah, there's a few things. Um, one is, like, safety equipment is hugely important. You know, I mean, I touched down relatively softly, but I ended up, you know, hitting that roof or tearing the gear off the airplane sliding down the runway. I wanted one off the runway. It was a rough ride. Um, I was wearing a helmet, which helped a lot because I know my head actually bounced off the canopy a few times. Um, I, I wear hooker harnesses, which have a ratchet, so I was tight down in the airplane. I mean, all that stuff is is priceless and definitely helped with me not being hurt and um, being able to walk away. I wear a parachute. You know, one of the first things I thought of was jumping out of the airplane. Unfortunately, the winds weren't going to permit that, but that that was an option. You know, if, if I needed to, I had that option to get out because I did have a parachute. Um, the next thing is just flight training. Um, you know, I just kind of reverted back to all my private pilot training and engine failures. And, you know, I, I still practice that stuff to this day. And so as soon as it happened, you know, I aviate, navigate, communicate, and, you know, you just fall back in your training and you do what you need to do. Um, it's amazing how time actually kind of slows down in your head because when, from when the engine actually failed to when I was on the ground it was just under three minutes. I mean, this plane doesn't from glide 11, very fast at all. From 11,500 feet, from up at 11,500. Yeah, yeah, this plane doesn't glide well. It comes down fast. So, wow, I mean, that's over, sure does. it's like 3,500 feet per minute descent rate. It's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. So you have to act fast, but if you know what you're doing, if it's practice, if, you be, if you're able to fall back on your training, time kind of slows down and it gives you the ability to actually think and, and um, not make harsh decisions or rash Let me decisions. touch on that, Rob, because you say you practice engine out. Uh, do you do that in the MX uh, over a runway and pull the aircraft, uh, pull the engine to idle and then just uh, go for that 180 to uh, land in the first uh, third of the runway? Well, first off, I always land power off. That's just, I just, that's, to me, that's the way to do it. I'd hate to be at an airport and have the engine fail and not make the runway and try to explain to the FAA why I was at an airport and couldn't make the airport. So I always, when I'm a downwind and it's time to turn base, it's, you know, I'm always put myself in a position where I don't leave pattern altitude tone in a position where I can pull the power always off and glide down to land. So that's just how I land. So that helps. 
Um, going cross country, you know, I had a flight instructor way back when, um, just instilling to me that, you know, always be looking out the window. So I tell you, if the engine quits, where are you going to go? If the engine quits, where are you going to go? What are your options? So I'm always looking around, always trying to find things. Um, and then just, you know, falling back on fly the airplane, you know, don't, don't give up on it. Um, try to think ahead of it. Try to think of where you go, going to go, what you're trying to do, how you're trying to accomplish it. Because at the end of the day, you want to walk away, you know, you want to walk away to, to fly again someday. And, um, that all kind of came back right in that instant. And that, you know, it was instrumental to me walking away. Rob, if you had anything to say to a pilot who wanted to get into, uh, get into aerobatics and or air show flying, what kind of tip would you give a, a young man or woman who wanted to do that? Don't be in a rush. It's, it's a journey. You know, there's a big difference between building skill and building experience. And experience will conquer over skill any day. I'd much rather have the experience than the skill. And that just takes time. And it's an awesome community. It's a great family. There's some great people. There are people that help you out along the way. But just don't be in a rush. You know, build your skills. Build your experience so that if something happens, you can take care of it and you can understand it. And um, just really enjoy the journey. And it's it's not the easiest road. It's tough. You probably have to sacrifice and give a lot of stuff up. You know, I know I wanted to be an air show pilot. And from when I started flying, like flying, flying, to when I actually did my first air show was 10 years. And that's all I want to do is fly air shows. And it still took me 10 years to get there. But I wouldn't give that back for anything because I built all sorts of experience and relationships and experience and, uh, you know, was able to get some good judgment eventually over time doing it that way. So just don't be in a rush. Have fun. If you're going to do it, do it. Don't have a plan B because you'll fall back on it. Just stick to plan A and go. <laughs> Rob Holland, thanks for being on I Laughed. Thanks for having me. Some great lessons from Rob Holland. I'm grateful that he shared them with us. Starting back in 2011, Rob started saying four words to his U.S. aerobatic teammates before they competed, and they're words we can all appreciate. Fly good, don't suck. I've even got them on the stick grip in my airplane. In October of 2022, Rob Holland will join competitors from around the globe for the World Aerobatic Championships to be held just south of Las Vegas, Nevada. Check Rob's website, ultimateairshows.com where you can sign up for all of Rob's air show and competition activity updates. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I hope you'll share it with your friends and other members of our aviation family to hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. The executive producer of the I Laughed podcast is Lisa DeFries. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. For Avemco Aviation Insurance, and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.